You say you've always wanted to travel to Israel with Charlie Dyer? Well, coming up, he's going to take us to his favorite places in the Holy Land and share some riveting insights. Now, along the way, there are plenty of laughs, too, and we're going to be experiencing the land of the book on the program that we call The Land and the Book. And did I mention we're giving away five copies of Charlie's newest book? Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book with Israel expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and no question the new year is quickly approaching, 2023 soon to be here. And the question is, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? Good to have priorities, but shouldn't we be praying about those? Would you like a reminder to pray? Well, I hope so, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to land in the book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself, or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, interesting archaeological twists and turns as you head to the Middle East, Charlie. And uh, you wanted to do something just a bit different with our current events segment this week. Yeah, before we get distracted by Hanukkah, Christmas, everything else happening in the Middle East, I thought it'd be good to just take time this week and focus on archaeology and some of the discoveries that have been made recently. Well, story number one takes us to Bonius, biblical Caesarea Philippi, where a cache of 44 gold coins were discovered. That sounds impressive. So what do we know about this find, and is there more to come? Well, this cache of pure gold coins are from the Byzantine era, and they were found stashed inside a stone wall, likely hidden there by their owner. From the names of the emperors found on the coins, the find dates to around the time of the Muslim conquest of the region uh, in 635 AD. Uh, The total weight of the coins recovered, that's five and a half troy ounces. Well, that's just over $9,600 worth of gold in Mm. today's market. The archaeologists assume the owner must have concealed his fortune before fleeing the threatening invasion, hoping to return later to retrieve his property. The fact that it remained hidden for nearly 1,400 years suggests not only that he chose a good spot to hide it, but that he also met an unfortunate end and was never able to come back. But the discovery, it's rather impressive. Sounds like those coins are fairly small, though, for there to be, uh, how many do you say, Uh, 44 and and, uh, just a number of ounces? Yeah, that's right. Just uh, 44 coins, five and a half troy ounces, but uh, it doesn't take a lot of gold to uh, add up, does it? For sure. And what a find. For story number two, we remain in the Byzantine or Christian Roman era, but our destination changes from Caesarea Philippi to Ephesus, where archaeologists uncovered what was apparently an early Byzantine restaurant. So uh, what was on the uh, menu there in Ephesus? Well, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it, but it seems to have had a typical Mediterranean seafood uh, fare for the restaurant. Archaeologists found remains of seafood like cockles and oysters and large jars filled with salted mackerel. They also found peach and olive pits, remains of almonds, and charred remains of peas and other legumes. Four gold coins and over 700 copper coins were also discovered. This restaurant was found near the Upper Agora or Market, which was the political center of Ephesus at the time. Now, in the same area, 
They also uncovered what appears to have been a shop selling both oil lamps and Christian souvenirs, Hmm. including the remains of 600 small pilgrim bottles sold to those visiting the city. Evidently, souvenir shops have been around for a long time, John. Now, sadly, they also discovered evidence of sudden destruction. Several arrowheads and spearheads were found, along with a thick burnt layer. They believe the destructions linked to the war that was fought between the Byzantine Empire and the Sasanian Empire of Iran between A.D. 602 and 628. Now, that war left both empires crippled and opened the way for the Muslim conquest just a few decades later. Well, technology is helping advance archaeology, and that includes the use of drones to provide a bird's-eye view of sites. If you're just joining us, by the way, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar. I'm John Geiger, and you know, recently, using a drone, archaeologists believe that they have uncovered the Venice of the Fertile Crescent. So where is this ancient city, and what have they uncovered? Yeah, the city was called Lagash, and we know from historical sources that it was an important city in the region of Sumer, which is in southern Iraq, near where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers meet. Using data gathered from this specially equipped ground-penetrating drone, the archaeologists found that Lagash was actually composed of four marsh islands connected by waterways. That's why they're calling it the Venice of the Middle East. Archaeologists spent six weeks taking high-resolution images of the site's surface. They were able to spot the remains of buildings, walls, streets, waterways, and other features now buried underground. The dense cluster of residences and other buildings suggests that in its heyday, the city covered between one and a half and two and a half square miles and had a population in the tens of thousands. Hmm. Now, today, the region is little more than barren desert, but this new technology allows archaeologists to peer back in time to uncover what once existed. And in the case of Lagash, it was a city of islands and canals. Sounds beautiful. Well, our next story moves from Iraq to Egypt and from a bird's-eye view to a below-ground perspective. Archaeologists uncovered a tunnel that they suggest might lead to the long-lost tomb of Egyptian Queen Cleopatra. What do we know about this discovery, Charlie? Well, the tunnel that's been uncovered is over 40 feet underground, Hmm. and it stretches for 4,300 feet. Part of the tunnel is now underwater. It starts beneath a temple located west of Alexandria in the Nile Delta, and that temple was dedicated to the Egyptian god Osiris. The archaeologists have found ceramic vessels and pots and alabaster carvings dating back to the Ptolemaic period. Uh, The chief archaeologists feel certain the tunnel will lead to the tombs of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. However, another possibility is that the tunnel was an underground aqueduct because it's an almost exact replica of a water tunnel found on the Greek island of Samos. Uh, We won't know which theory is correct until the excavation is complete. Now, the next phase of that excavation will focus on the section of the tunnel currently underwater. If archaeologists discover the tombs of Antony and Cleopatra, and I have to say, that is a big if, it would be the greatest discovery in Egypt since the finding of the tomb of King Tut exactly a century ago. All right, but do you suggest there is a possibility that those tombs could exist? Possibility, yes. However, the fact that they found an exact replica of this in Samos and it was a water tunnel, And the fact that this has water in it now uh, does suggest to me that it may have been nothing more than an aqueduct or a a tunnel to bring water into the temple complex. Uh, So uh, uh, as much as I'd love to hear that they found the tomb of Cleopatra, I'm going to have to wait till they find that to know for sure. 
I'll wait too, but I'm rooting for the big discovery. <laughs> All right, we got time for one more story here. Statistical analysis isn't usually associated with archaeology, but apparently it's being used to help resolve a long-running archaeological debate. When did the volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini actually take place? What's been discovered and why is it so significant? The eruption of the volcano on Santorini is one of the largest volcanic eruptions in the history of the entire Mediterranean region. But there's been a major debate on when exactly it occurred. Archaeologists originally dated it to around 1500 BC, but with advances in radiocarbon dating, others now suggest that date should be pushed back 100 years to around 1600 BC. The problem is that Egyptian chronology seems to align with the original date, while the new change creates problems. Now, in this new approach, a scientist collected data elsewhere from the impact of the tsunami that was caused by the eruption. He then incorporated that information from all those sites into the equation, and based on all the available data, he concluded the eruption probably happened between 1609 and 1560 BC. Now, his new timeline provides a date at least somewhere between the two proposed before, and hopefully that will help archaeologists and historians work out a timeline that can harmonize all the different civilizations in the Mediterranean region. Now, personally, I think this eruption, along with both the tsunami and the subsequent climate change that took place, could help explain the rise and eventual migration of groups like the Philistines, who ended up traveling from beyond Crete, which is in that general region where this volcano was, to the shores of Canaan. Hmm. Uh, using statistical analysis is a novel approach to help solve a thorny problem, and it might also help align the chronology of ancient civilizations and ultimately match those timelines with the Bible. And I think that really would be quite significant. Charlie, we've got a number of very curious listeners, and some of them are saying, where do you get this information? Are there one or two sources you would recommend to them? Oh, man, I'm such a news junkie. Uh, there are several sources, and certainly the, the Israeli newspapers, the Jerusalem Post online or uh, Times of Israel online are quite helpful. Uh, there are also some others. There's, there's an archaeological website. If someone just uh, clicks on archaeologica.org forward slash news, uh, it's a site that compiles all sorts of uh, information on archaeology. It's a great source of information on what's happening around the world and in Israel. You do not want to miss our next segment. Charlie shares some of his favorite places in Israel with some pretty funny stories next on The Land and the Book. Reading just one book gave you the feeling you were actually traveling in the Holy Land. And what if that same book offered not a dozen or two dozen pictures, but more than 250? What if those photos came with short, powerful insights that made you fall more in love with Jesus than ever before? I'd call that experiencing the land of the book. Hey, we're headed for the Holy Land in just a moment. I'm John Gager, welcoming you back to segment two of our broadcast. And before we take off for Israel, let's think creatively about ways we can reflect Messiah to the Jewish people that God has placed in our paths. Listen to this. 
So if you're a regular listener to The Land and the Book, you hear us encouraging you to share Yeshua, Jesus, with your unsaved Jewish friends. Maybe some say, isn't this really the job of my pastor or the elders or others who have the gift of evangelism or Jewish evangelism specifically? Greg Savitt, you're a, a Messianic believer. What's your response? Well, I definitely think you have a responsibility to do that. If you just think it's the pastor's job or you don't have the gift of evangelism, God's called you to make disciples. You don't have a free pass on that. You must <laughs> witness. And how is the pastor supposed to witness to everybody that comes in the congregation? You have that responsibility. You have that relationship. You have the ability to sit down with them after church and ask them questions. But Greg, somebody says that makes me nervous, though. I don't feel equipped. You know what? Would it surprise you to tell you that I've been doing this for 24 years and every time before I make a phone call or I sit down to witness that I get butterflies in my stomach because I never know what's going to happen. I don't know how the conversations go. I know it's a very serious conversation. I know I don't want to make a mistake. You're going to feel that way, but I can promise you the moment you start to share the gospel, there is power for the salvation of everyone who believes and you won't be worried about being nervous once you jump in. Hudson Taylor once said, sharing the gospel is like a cold shower. You just got to jump into it. <laughs> right. Great insights there from Greg Savitt with Rock of Israel. Well, it's a pleasure to reconnect with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And if you're a regular listener, you know that Charlie has written many wonderful books about Israel, the Bible, and the entire Middle East region. By the way, did you know that Charlie has led more than 100 trips to the Holy Land? He's been to Jordan many times, of course, and twice he was invited by the government of Iraq to travel there. Charlie, you have done something I'm not sure anybody else has ever attempted to do. Make a book about Israel that actually kind of takes us to Israel, not almost as if, but really and truly. How did you even come up with this idea? Well, you know, I wish I could claim absolute credit, but I think Mark Twain started the process over 100 years ago. His book, The Innocence Abroad, is actually a travelogue of his journeys with a group uh, both to Europe and the Middle East and to Israel or Palestine at the time. And uh, as I read that, it just fascinated me. And I decided we needed an update of that. We need a book <laughs> that takes people to Israel. In fact, I, I've, I've said this book is going to be the world's most inexpensive trip to Israel. I love it. Well, with more than 100 trips to the Holy Land, I'm sure you have hundreds of stories. And it probably had to drive you nuts that you couldn't include as many as you wish you could. How did you decide what made it into the book versus what ended up in your computer's recycle bin? Well, I started by saying, okay, it's going to be a trip. So every chapter is actually a place we visit on a regular tour. So it, it's, it really is a tour. And as I visit those spots, I, I wanted to tell, you know, what happened in the Bible there. But, but then, yeah, what happened at that place during those hundred trips uh, that stood out, that stayed unique? Uh, so uh, the uh, Sister Hellfire and Damnation is at the Mount of Beatitudes. <laughs> and I can't go to the Mount of Beatitudes without thinking about that story. Or, or the lady who got baptized wearing purple underwear uh, that had to make the book because uh, I, I end up sharing it with every other group that goes, and I thought i got to share it with these readers as well. All right. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and you've joined Holy Land expert and tour guide Charlie Dyer on a trip through Israel, sort of. We've got five copies of his new book to give away, courtesy of Moody Publishers. If you'd like to enter to win one, here are your instructions. First, you have to have never gone to Israel. If you've been there, sorry, we're going to save this for those who haven't. Second, you have to email us your name and mailing address. And third, 
Very importantly, tell us the number one spot you wish you could visit in Israel. We'll pick five random winners and let you know if you're one of them. All right, before we get to the stories, let's talk for a minute about the photographs throughout the book, Charlie. More than 260 of them. You're an avid photographer, but I'm sure some of those pictures came at a price or have a story of their own. Any photo memories come to mind? Uh, some are more painful than others, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those who always is looking for the ultimate picture. Uh, more, more recently, I've been even trying to take some video. Uh, but what I find is that the best pictures come by getting... Uh, to spots people don't go or looking at a different angle. And so there are a few places where I ended up on my backside, a few places where I ended up with some bruises and uh, some uh, other painful memories. Uh, <laughs> but the pictures that came out were worth it. I, I said, bones can heal. You know, as long as I keep that camera from getting broken, I can get the picture. You call this an illustrated travelogue. How about some tips for other Israel travelers? They're looking forward to a trip they've scheduled what do they need to think through before ever leaving for Israel? Uh, well, the best thing they need to do is prepare themselves biblically. Uh, they need to understand where are we going? Look at the uh, brochure that's given by the tour agency that you're going with and, and look at the sites and then study those sites in the scriptures. What does it say about Capernaum or, or Jerusalem? Uh, and uh, what do I need to know? Look at pictures that others have uh, posted or that have uh, that appear in books and just try and memorize those. Where is that picture? How can I get a shot like that? So when you're at the spot, you have an idea already of what, what kind of pictures you want to take. And thankfully, and I, this is where I love digital. When I, when I first went, it was all taken with slides and mm -hmm. pictures. And so you had to focus to get that one perfect picture. Now you can take 100 pictures and throw away the 50 that don't look very good. Uh, once you get back to the room at night, but just keep constantly taking pictures. Now, the one other piece of advice, uh, do make uh, notes of what you're taking. Uh, you know, the first day or so people are taking pictures going, this is unforgettable. And then by day three, you find them looking back going, now, what was that again? Uh, so they need to keep records of what they're taking, but take a bunch of pictures uh, because uh, I was actually in Iraq once and there was a fellow from National Geographic there. And as I'm waiting for my one perfect slide, I hear next to me, kachoo, 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 kachoo. And so I, I asked him, how do you get such great pictures showing up National Geographic? And he said at the time, uh, we shoot about 100 rolls of film for every one picture that makes it into the magazine. Uh, so it gave me an idea that uh, quantity does equal quality. Hmm. A life-changing journey through Israel connects its travelers to 50 highlights, all through stories and an illustrated travelogue. That's our focus as we talk today with Dr. Charlie Dyer on The Land and the Book. We are excited to offer five lucky winners a copy of his new Moody Publishers book, Experiencing the Land of the Book. If you've never been to Israel, then you can enter our drawing. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Tell us the number one destination in Israel you wish you could see. And don't forget to include your shipping address when you write us, the land and the book at moody.edu. Again, you're entering to win a copy of one of five of Charlie's new book. Well, Charlie, let's get to a favorite Israel tour story for you. First thing that comes to mind for you would be what? The Oxford Shirt Shepherd, John. Uh, and, and you know that one well because it happened to be a trip that we were doing together shooting for Moody Radio and yeah. uh, doing some, uh, some video. But uh, it took a little bit of pressure to get uh, a friend of ours outside Bethlehem to get us a, a shepherd that we could actually be with and get the sheep. And we showed up and this guy comes up just over the hillside with that sheep, a few goats. Uh, he's dressed in that long flowing robe. And it, it was one of those Kodak moments. I mean, we, we got sound, we got video, we got pictures. And 
and uh, he didn't speak much English. We couldn't get an interview with him. But uh, when we got all the way to the end and we go over to thank him, and that's when I think we both happened to notice it. Uh, <laughs> underneath the uh, traditional garb was that Oxford shirt, the button-down, buttoned uh, blue Oxford shirt. And you go, wait a minute, is this a real shepherd? Or did our friend say, hey, Joe, can you come over and help me? I, they need a shepherd. Just kind of show up with some sheep. Well... I guess it fit the bill. Let's move on. Another favorite story from your more than 100 trips might be what? A donkey man. Uh, and, and the sad part is this is why Israel changes. Uh, on the Mount of Olives, there was the perfect guy. I mean, he was the P.T. Barnum of the Mount of Olives. Yeah. Uh, dressed up like an Arab. He had his little donkey with him, a uh, big white mustache. He knew how to work the crowd. And, of course, everybody wanted their picture taken with him for a dollar, of course. Uh, donkey man just had everybody in the palm of his hand. But the last couple trips I was there, he wasn't around. So I, I wrote to my uh, bus driver and said, Munir, could you find out what happened to Donkey Man? And uh, he, he sadly wrote back and said, well, he died. Oh. Uh, and, and it's a good reminder that things change in Israel. And sadly, some of the people who were the uh, ideal people were, are no longer there. There, there was uh, Kojak the camel and his driver. <laughs> his, his driver died. Now, they got a new camel up there, and hopefully there'll be a new donkey man. But, you know, the, the people come and go, but uh, you just enjoy those experiences while they're there. Uh, can I share one more, John? Please do. Got to go up to the baptismal site. I mentioned it earlier, but uh, the lady in the purple underwear, you know, the baptismal site's great. It's it's a Christian baptismal site run by a Jewish kibbutz. A, a, only in Israel can that happen. Uh, but we tell people, you know, they, they're going to provide robes, but wear something underneath, a bathing suit or a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, but one lady forgot to bring her bathing suit. And she thought, oh, it's not a problem. Uh, she gets in to be baptized, and she's a little on the plus size. Uh, and the fellow baptizing her was an older gentleman. And as he put her under the water and then lifted up, uh, her feet went out from under her, and, and she literally started floating downstream. Uh, he's trying to stay hold of her. But uh, meanwhile, the, this thin cotton robe turned totally translucent. And so we're all just staring at this lady in purple underwear floating down the stream. Uh, it took away from the spiritual significance, but it created a memory that has stuck with me forever. I guess. Well, beyond the stories and the photos, you have a much more serious goal in mind for us uh, in going through the book. Talk about that side of the reader experience here. Uh, John, Israel transformed me. I was teaching at seminary before I went the first time. I got back and being exposed to the land opened my eyes to the, the Bible in ways I never thought possible. We, we tend to skip over people names and place names because they don't mean much. So one of my purposes in this book and with having so many pictures, I want people to experience that as well, to understand why standing looking over the Jezreel Valley will give them a new understanding for everything from Armageddon to Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal. And so we have pictures of all of those. And, and at each site, I try and share not only what you see, but what the Bible says happened at this location and what impact it should have on our lives today. Uh, for me, that's the ultimate purpose for a book or for a trip to Israel. It needs to change us. If it only affects our mind, we failed. Mm. But if the truth moves from our mind to our heart and then to our hands, uh, it accomplished what God intends for us. Well, much more than a mere history lesson or catalog of facts, you'll experience a trip to Israel, minus the uh, jet lag, sunscreen, and long lines. That's the promise of Charlie Dyer's Moody Publishers book, Experiencing the Land of the Book. Would you like to win one of five copies? You can, if you have never been to Israel, and you send us an email at thelandandthebook 
at moody.edu. Tell us in that email the number one destination in Israel you wish you could see. And don't forget to include your shipping address when you write to the land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie, I see this book as a huge encouragement for people who will never be able to travel to the Holy Land. They, too, can take a tour of Israel right from their couch or favorite chair. Was that intentional or just sort of a side benefit? No, that's that's very deliberate. I actually saw three audiences, uh, people who've been and want to relive the experience. This can help them. Uh, for those planning to go, it can help kind of set their, their expectations on what to look for, what to be expecting as they're, as they're at the sites. Uh, but the main audience are those, and it's the vast majority of Christians who will never have a chance to go. Uh, this is their opportunity to visit the land of Israel uh, vicariously, to see the pictures, to experience it, and hopefully to understand their Bible better as a result. We are so enjoying these stories, Charlie. we got time for one more if one comes to mind. Oh, one does, John, and it happens to be in Nazareth Village, and it was the two of us again. You remember the shepherd that showed up there? Uh, it was, again, one of those perfect experiences, an older teenage boy, and uh, you walked up to him, and of course, you have to talk a little more louder and, and slowly and say, where are you from? And and I, I still remember looking at his face, kind of like, uh, looked like he was trying to process the question, and then he said, Goshen, Indiana. <laughs> and it turns out he was he was a student who was there working on a, a, a semester abroad project. But uh, uh, that was just one of those perfect times that everything there is not exactly what it seems to be, uh, certainly in those key points. Well, the other piece that you should tell of that story is at the time you were provost at Moody Bible Institute, and this poor guy was looking to become a student. And you said, well, we might be able to do a little something for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, provide us a few more shots and we might be able to help get you in. <laughs> Well, there is so much to enjoy in this book. What about those who have already been to the Holy Land once or twice or even more? What will this book do for them? Well, I think it'll bring back some fond memories for them. And probably like eating a potato chip, it'll make them want to go back again because there will be some sites in here that they've not seen that they go, boy, I want to go back and see that one now. Experiencing the land of the book from Moody Publishers. Again, if you'd like to win one of five copies, uh, you can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Include your shipping address and tell us the number one destination in Israel you'd like to visit. And we're reserving this again for those who have never been there. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. Charlie's back with Bible Questions next. Reading the Bible is an awesome experience. And yet, as you read it, it's almost impossible not to have with you a pen and paper handy, or maybe your phone so you can jot down thoughts and questions that come to mind. But what do you do with those questions? How do you ferret out the answers? Well, that's what this next segment is about. Welcome back to the land of the book. I'm John Geiger. I'm not the answer guy. Charlie Dyer is. He's uh, been a pastor. He's uh, written extensively about the Bible, traveled to the land of the Bible more than 100 times. And Charlie, it's always good to connect with you on this segment. Oh, John, I love this segment. The, the teacher in me loves to hear questions because it lets us know where people are. And uh, you got questions, and hopefully we've got some answers from the Bible. All right, let's start with Ken. He says, I'm doing a study in Luke 13, how Jesus will judge the evildoers. And uh, as part of that, he says, I have included Isaiah 66, 24, but I'm not sure how it fits in with that time of judgment. Does this verse mean that when we live in the New Jerusalem, we're going to be able to see the rotting corpses of the unsaved, or does it mean something else? Seems like it would be hard not to weep every time we would see such a thing. And since there are no tears in heaven, I'm kind of confused. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, and what I would need to say is the last part of Isaiah is difficult in the sense that Isaiah describes both the kingdom age and the new heavens and new earth together. Now, in the progress of Revelation, uh, it actually takes the rest of the Bible, including the book of Revelation, until we actually know the order of those events. Now, having said that, though, I think these verses in Isaiah do describe the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure we can fully comprehend what things are going to be like then, but apparently the lake of fire will be somewhere outside the realm of the new Jerusalem, but still visible to us. Uh, I'm reminded of Jesus's parable. Remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, though that's just a story. And though Jesus wasn't describing the time of the new heavens and new earth, uh, he still makes a point about the abode of the righteous and the abode of the wicked and says, they're visible to each other. However, there's a great gulf fixed in between the two. Now, in light of that, I think Isaiah 66 is describing the reality that the new Jerusalem and the lake of fire are not hidden from each other in eternity. Each will be visible. Now, from our perspective, you're right. That sounds like it'd be hard not to weep over that scene of eternal judgment. But you also noted, and I think correctly, that there are no tears in heaven. I think that once we're in our glorified bodies, in the presence of God, we'll understand the righteousness of God in a way that makes the entire scene perfectly just. We'll see sin from God's perspective, and we'll accept the righteousness of the outcome for those who rejected God and rebelled against him. We won't rejoice in their pain and punishment, but we will see those things through God's eyes. Todd asks, how do you calculate the 70 years of Babylonian captivity referenced in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. What are the start and ending dates for the captivity? Yeah, like so many things in the Bible, there are two ways to calculate the 70 years. Now, some see it referring to the time that began in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar took the first of the captives, including Daniel and the other hostages, in the first of his three deportations to Babylon. The 70 years would then extend to about 537 BC when the first of those captives returned back to the land from Babylon. The the second way we can date it is to uh, date it from the destruction of the temple in 586 BC until the completion of the new temple, which happened in 516 BC. 70 years away. Now, one passage I think that does help here is Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Daniel tells us it's the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, uh, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. And he says, I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Uh, In essence, I think what Daniel's saying is the 70 years of Jeremiah might have had both the captivity of the people and the destruction of the city and temple in mind because he prays for both the temple, uh, the city, and the people himself. But Daniel chapter 9, I think, helps pull those two things together. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Boy, Charlie, the new year is quickly approaching, and before you know it, 2023 will be here. What do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? And would you like a reminder to pray? Those are both great thoughts, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. Uh, This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life in Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. All right, here's one from Betty, a question about the sprinkling of blood on Yom Kippur. 
When Aaron sprinkled it on the mercy seat, did it just remain there year after year with all the blood sprinklings building up, or was it cleaned off sometime? Also, when Aaron and his sons had to be anointed by the sprinkling of blood, did they then have to wash their white garments, or did they throw them away? Well, from what we know of Yom Kippur and the Holy of Holies, it seems the blood remained on the mercy seat and was never cleaned off. Yom Kippur is the only day of the year the high priest was allowed inside the Holy of Holies, and there's no suggestion he's ever permitted again into the Holy of Holies on that day or any other to wipe away the dried blood. Now, in terms of the garments worn by Aaron and his sons and and then his descendants, uh, we don't have any direct information, but I think there's an interesting passage that can help. In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, he sees a vision, and in it, the high priest is symbolically pictured as ministering before the Lord in filthy garments. While the point of the vision isn't to discuss how garments were cleaned, uh, the reality behind the vision is it would have seemed very unusual for a priest to be ministering in dirty garments. Now, that suggests to me that the expectation was the garments were normally cleaned following their use. Linney writes, we're studying 1 Samuel and one Bible commentary suggests Eli was 98 years old when he died. Now, how old would Samuel have been? Mid-20s? If 25, then he would fit the parameters for the priesthood. Is that correct? Well, the one key passage we do have is 1 Samuel 4, and it does say that Eli was 98 years old when he died and that he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now, we're not told when Samuel was born or how old he was when Eli died. Some have suggested he was born sometime between 1121 and 1116 BC. That would have made him somewhere around 12 to 17 years old when the ark was captured and Eli's sons were killed and Eli died. However, we don't know that for certain. We do know the ark spent seven months in the territory of the Philistines and an additional 20 years in Kiriath-Yarim once it returned. Now, after that, Samuel called all Israel together at Mitzpah and became their judge or leader. So if I add that 21 years to the time when the ark was captured, that would make Samuel somewhere around 33 to 38 when he became a judge. So it looks like Samuel was still just a teenager when Eli died. So he wasn't old enough to enter the priesthood right then. However, He would have been in his mid to late 30s when God finally summoned him to judge Israel, and he appears to have been a judge for about 33 years before being replaced by King Saul. Charlie, here's a question from Roger who points us to a video currently being circulated that makes claims about the Western Gate and the place where Jesus was likely tried before Pilate. Have you seen the video? Any thoughts on this? Well, I did take time to look at the video, and I agree with some of it. Herod's palace was on the west side of the city near Jaffa Gate, and it's probably the most likely spot where Pilate would have stayed when he came to Jerusalem. You know, I, I, I say to people when I'm in Israel, if you were the Roman ruler, would you prefer to be put up in a luxurious palace or in a cramped and dirty army barracks? Uh, so I, I don't think the Fortress of Antonia is where Pilate was, but I do think the uh, palace of Herod was. Now, however, I do have some problems. Uh, the spot that the video identifies as the army barracks, it just doesn't make sense. The beautiful mosaic floor Lord that was there and uncovered is not what someone would find in the place where the army stayed in that palace. Uh, Josephus describes it as a massive palace complex with two wings, over a hundred rooms for guests. Uh, one wing was named for Caesar, one for Agrippa. And uh, what, what's identified as the army barracks is likely one of the two wings in this massive palace. So I do believe Jesus was taken before Pilate in that general area, uh, rather than the traditional area you know, known as the Fortress of Antonia on the north side of the temple. Uh, so this is the most likely spot where Pilate 
Pilate met with the Jewish leaders and where Jesus was tortured and would have been then the place where Jesus began his journey to Calvary. Uh, But I'm hesitant to point out that exact spot in the area where he says, this is where Pilate sat in judgment. Uh, I'm not sure if we have enough information to be able to say that's true. Time for one more question from Richard. Genesis 1 verse 2 refers to the Spirit of God in the account of creation. Is this the third person of the Holy Trinity? Well, I believe it is referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, The phrase Spirit of God is used actually by Moses three more times in the Pentateuch, and it's used to refer to the divine enablement given to the workman who did the tabernacle, and it's used to refer to God's prophetic enablement that came on Balaam. Uh, So if I look at all those places, I think it's clear those refer to a divine presence or enablement that's intimately connected with God himself. Now, they didn't fully understand in the Old Testament what we know from this side of Calvary from having the rest of the New Testament, but from our perspective, I think we understand uh, that this is referring to the Holy Spirit, uh, the third person of the Godhead. Well, I covered a lot of ground today. You can hear it all again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Past programs and future programs all there waiting for you, thelandandthebook.org. And if you got a question, there's a link at the website you can use to get that to Charlie as well. Coming up, his devotional next here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today on The Land and the Book. His name was Dwight L. Moody. He lived from 1837 to 1899. And yes, it's the same Moody that's part of the Moody Bible Institute. It's named in his honor. Toward the end of his life, D.L. Moody traveled to the Holy Land. And all of that to say this, uh, there are only, to my knowledge, two recordings of D.L. Moody's voice. In one of them, he recites the Beatitudes. In the other, it's him reading from Psalm 91. And Charlie, I understand that's where you're taking us today in your devotional. I am, John, and I didn't realize that about D.L. Moody, so that'll make this even more special for me. Yeah, neat to hear his voice reading Psalm 91. We'll look forward to your devotional after we hear this thought from somebody else who's traveled to the Holy Land and now shares this with us. My name is Brad, and... What has struck me the most about this trip has been the importance of names in the Bible. Um, Caesarea Philippi had a bunch of different names. I've researched, I mean, I, I, I know what they are, but they're not in my mind right now. But the importance of following through the different names from the Old Testament to the New Testament to give the flow of the Bible and to to make it all fit together. And I've just, it makes me want to go back and, and study the Old Testament names and find out where is that place? And oh, that's this New Testament name. So I just, that has just struck me throughout the whole trip is the importance of names. Sure, appreciate those Holy Land experiences. Well, Charlie, Psalm 91 is a very impressive psalm. It's one I've tried to commit to memory, and I'm looking forward to your devotional. Oh, thanks. And to hear our psalm, we're going to head to the top of the Mount of Olives. We're on the northern edge of the ridge uh, near Hebrew University. Now, I like this spot because we have a great view looking east and west. Look off to the west. See how green it is? That's because of the rain that falls on the western slopes of the hill country. And as that moisture-laden air from the Mediterranean rises, it rains. And that's why it's so green. Now, turn and look the other direction. See how quickly the land turns brown. Once the air flows over the Mount of Olives and descends toward the Jordan Valley, it heats up and retains whatever moisture it has. And so at this one spot, we can see from green to brown and recognize the dramatic difference in Israel. 
Now, I've often been asked if I've ever been afraid while I'm in Israel. And my answer is, not really. Now, it's amazing how safe I felt almost all the time. Uh, Well, there was the time that my driver took a wrong turn. We ended up in a village where we weren't supposed to be, Hmm. uh, but nothing happened. Uh, I do remember once also feeling ill at ease walking through the old city of Jerusalem late at night. But again, it turned out that there really wasn't anything to be afraid of. But the one time I was genuinely concerned happened on a hike through that very wilderness you're looking at down there to the east. It was during a student trip on a hot summer day. The sun was relentless. The hike was hard, and I'd already used up the water in both canteens I was carrying. I remember how exhausted I felt and how much I really just wanted two things, something cold to drink and a shady spot to rest. For about an hour, life boiled down to those two essentials. Now, if you can picture that scene, I think it will help you understand and appreciate Psalm 91, a psalm that focuses on the security God provides to those who trust in him. To understand the psalm, let me give you the big picture first, and then we'll look at the specifics in more detail. The psalm can be divided into two or three sections, and both divisions are actually helpful. By dividing it into two eight-verse segments, we can see some amazing parallels Each segment begins with two verses of assurance, promising security to those who take refuge in God. And in both sections, the psalmist promises God's protection against two very specific enemies. But the psalm can also be divided into three sections based on the subject. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist talks about himself. I will say. Then in verses 3 through 13, the focus is on the audience. He will save you. He will cover you. You will not fear. And in the final three verses, the one speaking is God. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue. But whichever way you divide the psalm, the focus is on God's security for those who trust in him. The one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Those who go to God for refuge will find the shelter and protection they seek. In verse 2, the psalmist affirms his own personal trust in God. God is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The word he uses for fortress is Metsuda, Masada, the name later given by Herod the Great to his desert fortress by the Dead Sea. Herod's Masada fell to the Romans, but God's Metsuda will never fail or falter or fall. The psalmist then uses two sets of metaphors to picture God's protection from two kinds of enemies. The first are human enemies. The snare and the arrows in verses 3 to 5 are the threats launched against us by others. But an even greater danger, especially in Old Testament times, was that of plague and disease, an unseen enemy that could seemingly attack at random. And the writer talks about this threat in verse 6. He also stresses that God never goes off duty. He will protect against the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. Day or night, God will protect his followers. In the second half of the psalm, the writer pictures God giving his followers victory over the most deadly of enemies, pictured metaphorically by the lion and the snake. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Nothing will harm you. No enemy can defeat you. Those are amazing promises, but are they true? 
What about the believer struggling with cancer? What about the followers of Christ being persecuted and beheaded in the Middle East? Is this psalm an ironclad promise from God offering happiness and prosperity for his followers? Evidently, Satan thought he could trick Jesus by suggesting that was the case. When he was tempting Jesus, Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple and tried to tempt Jesus to jump off by quoting from this psalm. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus refused to fall into Satan's trap. To deliberately jump would have been to demand that God the Father serve him rather than the other way around. To put it into a modern metaphor, God might be our heavenly airbag, but that doesn't give us the right to drive our car into a tree. Uh, But let me be even more specific. The passage isn't a heavenly insurance policy guaranteeing we will never have problems or difficulties. Rather, it's a promise that when we face those times, we have a shelter, a refuge, a fortress, a shield, a bulwark, a God in whom we can trust. Or my favorite image of all, we have a loving protector who will cover you with his pinions so that under his wings you may seek refuge. As we head back to the bus, look back one last time toward the wilderness. It's the place of trial and testing in the Bible. That's where Jesus was tempted. You might be facing your own spiritual wilderness right now. And if you are, remember God's comforting promises in Psalm 91. To be a card-carrying member of the human race is to face problems and difficulties. But the wilderness is also the place where God is waiting to take you under his wing to shelter and protect you. Let me end with the words of William Cushing's hymn, Under His Wings, which he based in part on Psalm 91. Under his wings I am safely abiding. Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me, and I am his child. Thanks, Charlie. Well, that psalm, Psalm 91, has comforted me on many a sleepless night. And it's one I encourage you to commit to memory. Uh, Just a beautiful, beautiful psalm. I'm not sure whether it was inspiration, as I said, from D.L. Moody in that ancient recording or, or whether God doing something in my life, or maybe for you, it's this devotional from Charlie Dyer. Either way, memorize Psalm 91. I dare you, start today. You'll be so glad you did. You'll also be glad you checked out our Facebook page. We've got updates on current events from the Middle East, photos, little uh, news articles and tidbits you won't find anywhere else, you can get to that Facebook page by visiting our website, thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Facebook icon. You can't miss it. And uh, find out what's going on there at our Facebook page, thelandandthebook.org. And then click on the Facebook icon. Also at the website, a way for you to learn about today's guest, a way for you to listen to today's program, to learn about future programs and more at thelandandthebook.org. One last favor before the clock runs out on us. Would you tell a friend about The Land and the Book? Let them know where you listen or let them know that they can listen online or let them know that they can listen using the Moody Radio mobile app. Works great on your Android phone or iPhone. You can listen on demand to The Land and the Book. Just search for Moody Radio. Next time you're inside your favorite app store, download this app and listen to The Land of the Book that way. I'm John Gager. Been a pleasure hanging out with you. See you back next week for more of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.